Well, hello! Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So, it has been a little while since I've recorded an episode after doing a whole bunch of short stories, and, and including some of Lovecraft's revisions. Um, I took a little bit of a break. I had to work on end-of-semester stuff at my job, um, but now it's Spring Festival in in China, so I'm able to kind of get back into to Lovecraft. And um, you know, last time I had a long break, I was reading a lot of his letters, um, and it's not surprising that we're back to letters now. So um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna start going through volume three of the selected letters. I did volume two before. I urge you to go back and listen to those episodes uh, way back, probably 30 episodes or so ago. I looked at those. Um, I'll also try to dig around if there's any other nonfiction I can get my hands on written in the period roughly from 1929 to 1931, the, the period covered in these letters, um, which is roughly the period I've been covering in his stories in the last go. I think the story is covered 1927 to 1930. So, you know, it doesn't line up perfectly, but but close. So um, that's uh, I'll do at least that over, I think, eight episodes. And then I'll decide if I want to do volume four, because in the original sketch of this series, I think I was going to do volumes three and four together and then do the rest of the stories. But some of those stories are so long and they'll be multi-episodes. So that's maybe I want to break that up, too. Uh, we'll see how I feel about it. But definitely next eight episodes will be covering these letters he wrote roughly from J July 1929 to sometime in 1931. I won't be looking. I think this is when he begins his correspondence with Robert E. Howard. I'll just skip those letters, maybe just mention them briefly, because I'll be doing a whole series on the the means of freedom, the, the Howard Lovecraft letters uh, at the end of this, when I'm done with all the stories. And maybe when I'm done with the revisions, too, I think I'll... We continue to look at those side by side. So um, I'll kind of maybe end the series with a deep investigation of the Howard Lovecraft uh, letters. How detailed? Who knows? We'll see. Uh, I don't have any Library of America books, so I can't do my mainline series the way I normally do it. So I just guess I'll focus on Lovecraft uh, until I'm done with China forever. Um, so anyways... Uh, for these letters, I'm going to do the format different than I did last time. I'm going to continue looking at 20 letters per episode, um, but uh, last time I did it chronologically or how they appeared in the selected letters, which is basically chronological unless we don't know the exact date. They just get stuffed in there where the editors thought it should go. Um, instead, I'm going to still break it up chronologically by 20 letter chunks, but Instead, I'm going to break it up within that by correspondence. So, um, you know, Lovecraft, we got more letters in the selected letters to certain people in certain time periods. Obviously, they're, they're, they're very selective, right? We, most letters aren't included, and most, uh, most of the letters are often excised, so, uh, and they're highly edited. So I don't want to have to have that conversation again. It's a flawed source, but... Nevertheless, we do see certain trends. And I think the advantage of looking at it by correspondent is we can get a better idea of who he's focusing his attentions on in his correspondence at a certain time and themes. That's the main reason, because thematically, he tended to explore one theme back and forth over a period of time with one other, with someone who's writing with. Um, and so just going chronologically, you get, you know, like going a lot of back and forth thematically. So, so that's what I'm going to do. So these letters, the first chunk, uh, covers July 1929 to November 1929. So this is the period he's writing, like the Dunwich Horror, the Curse of Yig. Uh, yeah, those tales. So this is right at the, the end of the, the section of short stories that we, that we uh, just finished looking at. Um, so we got... Uh, Six different correspondence that he wrote uh, in this section. The l most letters in this period that we have, in the selected letters anyways, uh, were to Elizabeth uh, Toldridge. Uh, we've met her often in the in second volume of collected uh, selected letters. Uh, she's a poet from Washington, D.C. that Lovecraft wrote extensively with. He writes to her largely on themes of, of art and particularly lost cultures. So that's what we'll talk about. Uh, then um, Maurice Moe, uh, who was a big 
figure in especially the first volume of the Selected Letters. It was like an old correspondence, but Lovecraft was writing him because he was working on a revision for him, a nonfiction revision. So if I can get my hands on it, we can look at it. But uh, he was working on that project for him. And we got three letters on various topics, marriage, a little bit on Victorian culture. Uh, and we got a really long and, and important letter on his uh, pilgrimage to Foster, where he got to see, where he went to kind of investigate the family history on his mother's side. Um, then we have four letters to Ferdinand Morton. Uh, Ferdinand Morton is a very important correspondent of Lovecraft's. Uh, I do hope one day we get both sides. I don't know if the if if uh, Love you know Lovecraft kept all his letters to, uh, from Morton. It would be really nice if we had the back and forth because Morton is really someone who seems to have really been able to challenge Lovecraft on his ideas, uh, especially on civilization and history. And, and Morton was an anarchist writer. Uh, Lovecraft became friends with him in New York City, um, and they remained correspondents for quite a while. Uh, so he's someone who's really able to challenge Lovecraft's more, some of his more odious and, and offensive ideas. And, and the result is we get really, really long letters that show Lovecraft reflecting on his thoughts on history and politics and and race and things like that. So it's a really powerful source. In fact, the longest letter in this section is one he wrote in November 1929. Uh, no, in October 1929, which deals with civilization. Um, so there are four of those. Uh, then we have one letter by uh, to uh, Bishop, um, Zelia Bishop, uh, now, he's writing at this time the Curse of Yeag. So this letter seems to be part of that correspondence surrounding the writing of the Curse of Yeag, which is a story we looked at already in this podcast, uh, mostly written by Lovecraft. Um, he's, this isn't about the Curse of Yeag, though. This is mostly a recommendation of self-study. It's not that important. Uh, then we have four letters to August Derleth, uh, which are not the most interesting. They deal with uh, landscape and architecture and, and just things like that. And then we have one uh, brief uh, selection of a letter to Clark Ashton Smith, which is about the Curse of Yig and Dunwich Horror. So um, really what we want to focus on, I think, are the Told, Toldridge letters. They're quite good, uh, dealing with a lot of different issues. The And the Morton letters. The, the Maurice and Mo letters are maybe... Uh, second tier of importance in this section and then the the bishop derleth and smith letters are are the least important i think for for someone really trying to get their head around uh lovecraft's ideas all right so uh toldridge um let's start with her so uh so in this section again these are ongoing correspondence right so maybe if i were to redo all of this i would just look at maybe the letters to one person throughout his whole career in an episode or something or in a series of episodes that'd probably be better but i'm still going to break them up chronologically in these 20 letter segments and so it'll be a little bit jarring but hopefully this will be a little bit smoother and that will be able to kind of say what is he talking with one person about over a period of time you know a period of months uh, so uh he's writing here to toldridge about anarchism uh, initially it's a really interesting it's the very first letter in the third volume, and it's right about anarchism, which is kind of fun. Um, so, of course, Morton is an anarchist, so I got to imagine that he actually mentions, like, I write a lot of reds or I write a lot of these communists and anarchists. I think you think about Morton mostly. He's got a few other left-wing correspondents that he he writes with. Who is that guy he wrote a handful of really long letters to? We talk, talked about in the last um, series on letters. I forgot his name, but... Um, just give me a second. Let me find it. Oh, yeah. His name was Harris, right? 30 page letters on civilization and race and things like that. He was also seemed to be kind of lefty. Um, but I think he's thinking mostly about Morton here. And he just thinks uh, anarchism is kind of a social, social fatalism. And what he means by this is, I mean, he's it's his, his conservatism, right? So in his conservative worldview, society and kind of cultural foundations are something you really need right so he sees the anarchists as, as fatalist about society they don't see the usefulness of society and i, I think he totally misunderstands anarchism here because most anarchists are what we call social anarchists they the whole reason they argue we don't need a state 
is because they think society is something that can carry on the functions of the state directly um, and in a more democratic and fair and just way, right? Um, but he claims they're basically social fatalists who don't believe in society instead just believe in the perfect human being. Again, this is a misunderstanding of anarchism, to be sure. Anarchists uh, tend not to believe humans are perfect perfectable which is another reason they don't like the state if humans were perfected perfectable you could just find the most perfect human and elect them to rule us as philosopher kings right um, but anarchists say no we, we can't entrust anyone with power which is why we have to diffuse power in society at large and and have better democracy so there's a couple here really big errors about the nature of anarchism but i think the key key point in this letter is lovecraft kind of justifying his social conservatism as, uh, you know, as something that provides either a cultural or social or intellectual foundation for one's whole bearing, right? All this comes back down to, in a way, to his cosmic horror. I used to think, well, you got his racist ideas, you got his political ideas, his ideas on civilization and history, and you got the cosmic horror, and they don't really intersect that much, right? And as I've kind of read more Lovecraft and thought more about him, I think, no, they're really they're, they're integrated, really, essentially, um, especially the race ideas, right? It really seem to be part of his overall worldview and philosophy as reflected in his works, um, you know, his cosmic horror stuff. But I think even more fundamental when you get into the letters is he just believes that in this indifferent universe, we need a social foundation, right? If you remember the opening to the Call of Cthulhu, where he says, you know, we're, uh, we're in this black void of, you know, science has brought us to this point where we understand the universe and we can't manage it. Uh, we can't understand it. We go mad if we even try to think about it. So we have to resort back to what he calls like a glorious dark age or return to a peaceful dark age. Right. But in his letters, he sees another alternative, which is, you know, we, we can our ship in this sea, this cosmic sea is our culture. Right. And that at least gives us some foundation we can rest on. He sees the anarchist as someone who's trying to throw throw that out to basically smash the ship when they're in the, when they're in the middle of the, when they're in the middle of, the, of an ocean. Um, so that's that's interesting. It doesn't really come up again in the later Toldridge letters in this section, but it's it's a fun little way to open up this this set of letters. Then we have uh, another something. This comes up a lot more in the Toldridge letters from this from the second half of 1929, and that is questions of lost cultures and lost civilizations. Right? He talks about discovering lost cultures in New Mexico. I think it's like the discovery of the Anasazi people or, or things like that. Actually, this came up recent, like at the time, recent discoveries about cultures in the New Mexico and the Southwest came up in a Will Cather novel we looked at, The Song of the Lark. I think it's in The Song of the Lark, uh, which is, I think at that time that Will Cather was writing that, which is right around this time, there was uh, these recent discoveries, and she really made it a big theme of that novel. Um, so what Lovecraft's interest in, of course, is that, and this goes way back in his work, all the way back to like the transfiguration of Juan Romero, that story, is this idea that there are a deeper, deeper, broader history of humanity, right? That if you go back far enough, there's a deeper history, like the Atlantis, ancient cultures, and we're still kind of living with the legacy of those civilizations. He turns this on his head in his stories to make them horror themes like, oh, there's some ancient spell or God or, or knowledge or tradition that's buried underground in these kind of um, rhyme zones of interconnected cultures. Uh, so that's really cool. Uh, we also get, and this is going to come up in the Robert E. Howard letters, I believe, is the Central Asiatic Theory of Human Origins. So if you're not familiar with this, um, I'm not the expert on this, actually, but the Central Asiatic theory of human origins holds that humans originated in Central Asia. It's, it's that simple. Um, now, out of Africa 2, out of Africa 1 being Homo erectus, out of Africa 2, Homo sapiens, is the preferred theory now, of course, confirmed by uh, DNA evidence and fossil records and all that. So that's the preferred theory, but they didn't know it in the 1920s. In the 1920s, they're still being debated by anthropologists what human origins were. And 
so you get the Central Asian theory. And I think this is going to have a lot of impact on science fiction of the time and, and fantasy writing of the time. It's, it's be interesting to explore that. That'd be like a, a good, nice article or, or a book is just to explore the impact of theories of human origin. I mean, really, the, the key issue here um, for Lovecraft is the, you know, the deeper roots of folklore. That seems to be what he's, he's driving at here. And, and there's kind of a thought experiment here. You know, how deep can you go if, if you can find the roots of humanity, you can find the roots of language, you can find the roots of, um, of our folklore, right? Which, of course, was a big trend of the nationalist uh, literature, literary movements of the 19th century, like the Grimm brothers, you know, you go kind of find your national heritage by going back to the folklore and the stories. Um, so, anyways, that's that. That's that one letter. Um, then we have a letter again to Tolbridge about a month later um, about poetry. You know, of course, Tolbridge, of course, is a poet. Um, so they often talk about poetry. It's not something I know that much about, or and that's skilled in. But they do talk about new trends in poetry. Um, and the focus here seems to be on modernism, which is something Lovecraft wrote a lot about, especially to Toldridge. They, they wrote a lot about moderate, moderism. Sorry, modernism uh, in literature. That's something that Lovecraft had his doubts about. But the focus here is on something called this rebellion of, of taste, or to quote, exactly the revolt against artificiality which lovecraft sees as something that was deep in the history of poetry it's always there right this drive for authenticity and this rejection of the artificiality of it right so instead of having strict structure to your poems you you, you go to blank verse right or instead of uh, religious themes or or moral you know morality play kind of poetry you go to or naturalism more authentic kind of storytelling, realism, whatever. These are, of course, real trends of the of the 19th and early 20th century, and it's part and parcel of modernism, right? At least to the degree naturalism is, I think. Um, <clears throat> so it's it's an interesting conversation, I think. It's it's not something I'm really keen on getting like the nuanced language of, or the details of, but I, I do think this letter stands up as part of this conversation he's having about about modernism in in literature of the time. Um, a little bit later, uh, he writes back, this is August 14th, 1929. Uh, he writes to her really more, this is more personal. Uh, he often writes about poetry and art with her, but this time he writes about uh, port cities, which is always fun to read about. I'm really interested in this aspect of Lovecraft's thinking. Um, it comes out of a fact that he, he traveled with uh, uh, Long, his friend Long, uh, to Cape Cod. In fact, we have no long letters in this section for whatever reason, um, but they did spend time together this in the summer of 1929, and they traveled to, to Cape Cod. And so this gives Lovecraft a chance to reflect on, on his travels, which he always does with his, the people he's writing to. It reflects on the ar architecture and the, and the environment and the, the history of these places. It's... Um, you know, big bulk of his letters are of this type. Uh, this time he's talking about the port cities of New England, and he kind of sees them as unchanging and, and really this deep historical milieu of them. What, you know, I, I, I talked about in the stories how you got this sort of a trio of, of towns, right? You got Kingsport, which is the a 17th century town, and you have the 18th century towns of like Providence and Arkham, Arkham kind of being a reflection of Providence and Salem. They're more 18th century towns. And then you have a more, like Innsmouth strikes us more as a 19th century industrial town, actually. But you kind of see this progression over time, right? How places get stuck in time um, based on their architecture and their culture. And he talks about that here, talking about Cape Cod and the whaling economy and, and things like that. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff about that here. Um then uh, a couple weeks later, September 3rd, he writes again to Tolbridge. This time it's about, uh, again, about poetry. It might be a reaction. Because we never, that's the problem with the selected letters is we only get the one side of the conversation usually. So we don't know what she's saying to, you know, what exactly he's responding to. That's why I'm excited to get into the Robert E. Howard letters because you really see 
letter by letter what they're responding to. Um, but apparently she replied to that earlier letter about poetry at some point, and this is his response to that. Um, and he, he basically kind of rolls back from some of the seriousness which he took poetry in the previous letter and instead says, says basically poetry is enjoyment. Shouldn't be taken too seriously. Um, but he does think art has a very important place in this indifferent universe. So back to that core philosophical idea that we see again and again in the letters that there's this indifferent cosmos and we need to be on a ship. We need something stable to ferry us through that. And it could be culture. It could be our history. It could be, you know, and that's all tied up into his ideas about race. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I think his, his ideas of race are really in, in some rookie cultural. I mean, at the roots, they're cultural concepts. That's why he divides like the Nordic and the Latin races and, and the Slavic races. He subdivides them, which are really cultures, right? Ethnicities, not, you know, linguistic groups, not 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 just the five categories of race that were popular in the, you know, among scientific racists of the time. Um, well, not in, he's not alone in doing that, of course, but the the fuzzy line between between race and ethnicity, which to, to people now, you know, it's not so fuzzy. It's, there's a clear idea of what race is and a clear idea of what ethnicity is, even if they do overlap sometimes. Um, this time it, they seemed a little bit fuzzier. Anyways, uh, here he argues art can be a bastion in an indifferent universe, writing... And so I say, this does not imply any triviality on the part of art, for is not emotional satisfaction the only supreme goal of any intellectual life? The cosmos contains nothing of greater importance for the negligible atoms called human beings than the condition of being elegantly amused. It is the only mental laziness and artificial convention which can lead us to a measure of accomplishment by the approval of others. End quote. Essentially, he's saying, you know, nothing matters, so amusement has value in that case so when he says don't take poetry too seriously he only means that partially he means you know we shouldn't really take anything too seriously because we are in this vast cosmos of that's indifferent to us so the fact that i can produce something and someone can praise it and say this is a supreme achievement in poetry and i got great pleasure reading it you know that's a great that's something that's really valuable so i like this uh this argument about you know, how something can be trivial and essential at the same time um, and how we need more triviality. Um, I, I think we need more leisure. That's, that's where I'm coming from here. I, I think we need more leisure. We need to redeem play and leisure uh, as a, in our war against work. The war against work can't just be labor unions and political struggle and raising the minimum wage. It has to be a broader struggle to redeem the value of play. And I don't know if we want to get there the way Lovecraft does, just saying the universe doesn't really matter. <clears throat> and therefore, you know, play is as is, is, is good as anything else. I, I, I won't go that far. And of course, Lovecraft also thinks there are trivialities that he doesn't really want to engage in, right? He doesn't seem particularly interested in sex. He doesn't seem particularly interested in, in quite a lot out there, right? Sentimental fiction, for instance, but by this logic, sentimental fiction, you know, is also as valuable as as poetry. So I think this position undermines some of his other kind of more cantankerous attitudes towards art and culture. That's fine. I, I'll, 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 I'll take uh, art and amusement. Uh, his argument about art and amusement as it is here. Um, he actually, you know, says art is like the true amusement. That's how he kind of squares this. He says... Art is, is true amusement. There are other amusements which don't quite reach that level. But again, I think if it's, it's kind of like the Protestant argument that God is all-powerful. All so even if I'm as good as possible, I'm still an infinitely you know, separated from God in terms of my goodness. So that's why salvation must be a, a gift. It's the same way. If the universe is that indifferent to us, you know, what's the gap between art and you know, poetry is, is art and and just like sleeping with prostitutes. It's in the context of the indifferent universe, that gap is not that that large, seems to me. Um, but but anyways, art should be taken seriously, but not too seriously, I guess is what he's trying to say on this. Um, I don't know what she said that 
maybe she said something like, you're taking art too seriously. And he's, he responded something like, well, I'm not really taking art too seriously. You gotta, you know, I'm, it's an all, it's all contextual. It's all based on the, the it's all in relation. Okay. It's a good article. A good, uh, letter. Um, next we have September 16th. So that's about a month later. No, two weeks later. Um, and he goes back to this theme of primordial cultures. So I won't say much about this, but he basically gets the idea that he like he, he starts out with this Roman coin they're talking about, and he says this would be a really good foundation for a story because like artifacts allow us to kind of get to these primordial cultures. And in fact, he has done this in the Transfiguration of Ron Romero, where there's like that ring, right? That is somehow connected to Huitzilpochtli, but also connected to these Indian um, gurus, or, you know, monks or whatever, <clears throat> aesthetics that he studied with. I guess they weren't monks, but... So he's done this before in stories, but... So he has this idea of the Roman coin being this. And notice this isn't... Lat lo this is about... Yeah, this is after the, the, the old... The very old folks was, was written in a letter. So he's been thinking about the Romans... And, and a story based on the Romans, based, you know, from that. So that's the idea. There's primordial cultures. It's a big, important theme of, of Lovecraft's whole work, I think. Uh, he talks a little bit here also about the gang calling. I, I want to downplay. I, I'm not going to say as much about the some of the new, the mundane aspects of, of Lovecraft's life and friendships as I move forward. They're part of his letters, but. I don't know. One reason I'm kind of reorganizing this is so I can downplay that and really focus thematically on, on what I think is key, the key threads in in the letters. I'll keep it everything more interesting, I hope. If you like that stuff, just read the letter yourself. All right, then we got two weeks after that, um, another letter to her, October 1st, which uh, talks about old buildings and architecture, um, in fact, I think she's talking about, because she's talking about Washington, he talks about New England, right? So there's back and forth that way. And sometimes they're talking about architecture or buildings or cultural preservation, something Lovecraft cared a lot about, as we'll see later on. Um, but she must have been talking about the restoration of Arlington, which I know nothing about that, that particular um, restoration project, but I guess modern Arlington as you see it today, is, is a reflection of, of that. I'm thinking the building, not the, everyone thinks of the, the graveyard, but the building itself. Um, and he also then says, well, he talks about the Quincy um, house, which is also kind of an old building that's, that's being restored. So there's kind of a, a conversation about architecture in different parts of the country. Um, so... And then he, he kind of steps out for a while and then talks about Asian migration to America. So this goes back to the human origins theme. This might be a carrying on of that conversation where they talked about the Central Asian theory of human origins. But then the question is, where do Americans come from? And, and as now and as then, the theory was Asian migrations. Or you can't say Asian, right? Migrations from what is now Asia, right? Uh, crossed over and became the Native Americans. And this was... The idea then so Lovecraft basically says I think this is true I don't know if other people came later or the details of it but basically I hold <clears throat> that Asian migrants people the Americas and then he flips to talking a little bit about architecture in America more generally so this letter is a little bit mixed but some nice stuff about buildings and then uh, the last one is October 25th uh, which Talks more about landscape, a little bit more about Washington. They're kind of carrying on that conversation about <clears throat> architecture and landscape. Um, but basically, I think the most interesting thing here is he, he, he mentions a discovery about the Eskimos. Um, and we get back to this theme of primordial cultures. Um, so he says, I actually used this in Polaris. And if you remember the story Polaris, the, the, the trick there is that the Eskimos were, were kind of an ancient empire. Right. And the current day Eskimos are just the, the remnants of some ancient civilization. Right. It's kind of a dreamland story, but somehow it's also set on Earth because the Eskimos seem to be the, the villains of that story. The, the invaders that destroyed this old civilization. 
Um, but uh, he talks here a lot, a lot about ancient lost civilizations. And I think he mentions Atlantis here too. Um, so that's it. Those are the seven letters to Toldred. So it's a lot. It's, it's like a third of the letters, uh, not bulk-wise, because a lot of these are highly edited and we only get sections of them. But some really good stuff here about art, about poetry, about modernism. And some really good stuff about about lost cultures, primordial cultures. That's that's what I want to say, primordial cultures. So, um, yeah. So what's really going to be cool is now when we go back and see what he writes to Toldridge in the next four, five, six months, however much the next twenty letters cover, I'll be able to say, well, this is what he was. You know, we can go back. I even have notes here on what he was talking to Toldridge before. We can kind of carry on this conversation. Um, but. Yeah, I think, I think this format is going to work a little bit better. So that's seven letters. Um, next we have, uh, I guess, Maurice Moe. Yeah, let's do Maurice Moe. Uh, not because it's the most important. I think the most important are the Morton letters in this selection, the four Morton letters. But Maurice Moe is the next kind of chronological. One day after he wrote that initial letter to Toldridge on July 1st, he wrote one to Maurice Moe. Um, now, this first one... July 2nd, is the most interesting of the three letters he writes to to Maurissimo in, the, in, the, in this period. Um, and they all deal with kind of separate topics. It's not like they're having an ongoing back and forth conversation as much. It doesn't seem as much because each is kind of standalone. But they're all kind of interesting. The first is about marriage. Um, and so this is a big one. Um, he often writes about marriage. And of course, Lovecraft did marry uh, Sonia Green, and he eventually divorced her. Um, and he talks about modern marriage. And as a social conservative, and as a cultural conservative, it's kind of fascinating what to do with marriage. Because uh, he's also very modernist and very scientific. And, and he's, you can imagine he's someone who wouldn't want to see people recklessly get involved in marriage. Or you think there should be some reason and rationality behind marriage, too. But if that's the case, then you're going to have a lot of single people who who choose not to marry, right? Now, what does that do to culture? What does that do to preserving culture and carrying on culture, right? I, I mean, a, many cultural conservatives, you know, rest the family, right? They think the family is the core. And so we must defend the family uh, no matter what, because that's the foundation of our culture and that's what carries on our culture. And for someone to not not to marry or not to have kids, it's, it's not the most conservative thing to do, I guess. Um, for many cultural conservatives, Lovecraft, of course, you know, doesn't doesn't have kids. Um, so what do we get here about marriage? <clears throat> well, he starts out saying, "Now, by the way, why is he writing Mo here? Because we haven't seen much to Mo in the last in the second volume of the Selected Letters. Well, he's working on a a work about poetry for Maurice Mo. He's basically revising. He's it's like ghostwriting it, I think." If I can find this, I'll maybe mention it a little bit. Even though I don't, I'm not that interested in what he has to say about poetry all the time, I can consume it in little chunks, but big chunks, I'm, I'm not so sure. Anyways, um, marriage starts out here saying basically it's it's very very difficult to know each other, so it's very almost impossible to know who we should marry, right? And to not make mistakes in who we marry, right? So he actually thinks we need liberal divorce laws. Um, so again, he's kind of, this is not what most cultural conservatives would say, right? Most would say we need to make divorce harder. We need to force people into therapy, force couples to work out their problems, to keep the family together. Um, and he doesn't really talk about kids here. So of course, kids does complicate the picture of, of it's easier for Lovecraft and Sonia Green to divorce because, you know, there's no kids. They're already living apart. It's more of a formality. Um, but still, I, you know, this idea we need to liberalize di divorce laws to save marriage. That's, that's the argument Lovecraft gets to, which is a bit counterintuitive at first glance, but I actually think it makes a lot of sense because um, the traditional marriage is going to leave a lot of people miserable and unhappy because you're just going to, you're going to end up with people you're not suited to be with um, because what drives us to marry, it's often the hormones and chemicals in our brain and, and sex, right? It's We don't always take the good advice of people who say, you know, you should just marry a friend, right? They, it's not usually what happens. And then we look around, we see all these miserable people now because those chemicals, they change, they wear down. After the kids are raised, 
you know, you have the seven year itch and all that. Um, yeah, it's it's tough. So it's it's better to have be married to someone you can have a firm relationship with. Um, and now he is aware that there is a change in morals. There's a problem of changing morality in in America, but nevertheless, marriage needs to basically the the institution of marriage needs to accept the changing morality about divorce and liberalize divorce laws. So it's a conservative argument for liberal divorce laws because basically thinks this Apollonian and Dionysian clash in people can't really be ever fully resolved and therefore marriages are going to be rendered asunder or, 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 or just be miserable. So divorce is a more stable system if it's, if it's done properly. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of like if it doesn't flex, it'll break, right? If, if marriage as a system doesn't have any flex to it, in the modern world, it's going to break. It's going to shatter, and that shattering will be catastrophic for, for, whole civilization. I think now he's rather indifferent to marriage, but he writes some really interesting stuff about marriage. I think uh, I think we'll see other letters, um, where he kind of goes back to this theme of marriage. So keep it in mind. Um, now there's a little bit of a mention here about his personal need for New York stability and the chaos of New York. We've talked about it so much in the last volume was a little disappointed that Lovecraft still feels the need to remind people how much he hated New York, but he did. Anyways, that's a good letter. July 2nd, 1929. Then we have about a month later, uh, another letter to Maurice Moe, where he talks kind of about Victorian culture. And this is a kind of another bit repetitive. He likes the Georgians. He likes the 18th century. He likes the scientific spirit of the 18th century. But his vision of the 19th century is pretty bleak. He doesn't think uh, it's the Victorian culture. He thinks it's it's kind of a, a dead end culturally. It, it's fun to read, though. It is a bit repetitive because he, he's always saying how much... He, he makes his argument to many people. But here's what he says. The 19th century never existed so far as I am concerned. Its smugness, affectation, decorum, purposefulness, precocity... Mock medievalism, optimism, hypocrisy, progressivism, inhibitions, and so on have uh, rebounded from me as a 1970, 1870 rubber ball might rebound from a 1720 brick wall. My spirit is of the 18th century. My scientific information and philosophical perspective of the 20th. End quote. Um, he says, I have less sympathy for the 19th century than I where I have less awareness and knowledge and, and, and affection for the 19th century than I do for cultures like in the Solomon Islands or something. So um, here's the thing. I've been teaching art history now. And, I, you know, I've looked at 18th century art. I've taught it. And that Rococo art, it's pretty frivolous. I mean, I, who's he calling 19th century frivolous? If you've seen some of 18th century art, it's... It's got that kind of the, the Rococo style and especially that kind of aristocratic. Uh, it's, it's flippant. It's it's trivial. So I think sometimes he over argues just a bit. Right. Lovecraft just just a bit over argues things. Uh, anyways. And then another month later, we get uh, September 1st. Now, this letter is kind of important. I'm not going to break it down for you that much. Just gonna mention it exists because this is the kind of thing you need to dissect, uh, really bit by bit, if you really want to like write a like a biography of Lovecraft. Right, this is something for that voluminous podcast, if, um, which I've never listened to. I admit I've never listened to voluminous, but they are breaking down Lovecraft's letters like one episode per letter. Right, um, but really getting into the the, into the details of it. This would be a good letter for that if they haven't already done it. This is about his pilgrimage to Foster, um, where he kind of explores the family history of his maternal ancestors. And he focuses a lot on his heritage and his family history. Um, now, there's a couple th themes here in this letter. Uh, one is like this theme of time travel, which whenever Lovecraft goes somewhere, there's always a theme of time travel. This feeling that he's going into another place, another time, and experience another culture from another time, right? That places through their architecture and landscape sort of get preserved 
in a, in a time. And then he sees evidence of that in his interactions with other people. Um, but then a, a new, something like New York City that's constantly changing. This is, of course, the theme of he. New York City is constantly changing its architecture and geography, and therefore it's always modern, and it loses its connection to its past. So that comes up a lot here. Um, there's also a lot about the Phillips presence as part of the permanence of Foster, which, of course, is the, the, the P of H.P. Lovecraft. It gives him this deep affection for this time and place. Uh, of course, he couldn't really trace his father's heritage in quite a so, so proud a way. So it's his mother's line that he finds those aristocratic roots. Um, and he does succeed here to some degree. This is really, I think, an important letter. He talks to other people about the, this trip too, but um, this, I think, is the longest we have in the selected letters. That's So one theme is anyway time travel. A second theme would be like his personal deep affection for this time and place and that family line. And the other would be this fear of modern decadence coming in. So he actually starts to say like, we start to see the evidence of modern decadence kind of pe peeking into Foster. You know, the, the phone lines or the telephones or, you know, electricity. That this is going to be the beginning at the end of Foster. So when you change the landscape, you change its cultural sensibilities and its heart. And, you know, if it becomes too modern, it will become a modern place in the mind, too. Right. So I think this relationship between the architecture and the landscape and the mind of the people is really, really uh, an interesting idea. Um, I don't know if I believe it because you end up with a, a lot of places that are just you end up, I mean, it's almost like uh, you go to those historical reenactment, you know, tourist sites, right? Like Colonial Williamsburg, and people are dressed up in, like, the 17th century clothing, you know, and talking like they're in the 17th century and all that. But it's, there's a preposterous nature. There's that anachronistic reality to that. So, anyways, but this is an important letter. It's fairly long. And it gets to, it's all about this pilgrimage. So I think you, I think it's important to read. So that's Maurice Moe. Again, we got a mixture of different themes. Uh, Maurice Moe, of course, an old friend of Lovecraft, one of his earliest correspondents. Um, but three, three, I think, good good letters to, to, to look at. All right, moving on to um, Ferdinand Morton. So four letters to Ferdinand Morton. Um, this anarchist writer, Lovecraft met in New York, carried on a long correspondence with. Many of his most interesting letters are... Lovecraft's most interesting letters are to Morton, uh, to be honest. Um, we really need a back-and-forth edition, like we have for the Howard. I think with Luth Long, we have the back-and-forth. With Toldridge, we have the back-and-forth editions. It's published by Hippocampus Press or whatever. Now, they, there is a volume of just the letter, Lovecraft letters to Morton, but not the... Morton letters to Lovecraft. Now, maybe in reality, they're just short little notes like, you know, you suck, anarchy forever, or whatever, and then Lovecraft writes this long response. But I don't think that's what you're getting. I think the Morton letters must have a lot of wonderful stuff in them. So if I was, wasn't so lazy, I'd look it up myself. So these are all about civilization in a way. Um, the first one we get, uh, July 30th, 1929, in this section, he took gives a little bit of news on his aunt, um, but the card here is about rioting at Brown. I think this is like maybe the springboard of their of the rest of the conversation they have in the second half of twenty nine because it starts out this Brown riot, which I actually looked up. Twenty five freshman students were expelled, kicked out of Brown University, of course, in Providence, right? So it was kind of like I don't know if Morton heard the news and asked Lovecraft what he thought about this riot, but twenty five freshmen were expelled for essentially a riot and they were protesting it seems having to wear black ties the dress code um which is kind of wild um and then lovecraft sort of says you know he sees rebellion as sort of a nordic trait and something he wishes he could do there's this a little bit of anti-modern fascination he's actually got an inward robert e howard here like you can imagine robert e howard saying like oh i wish i was in the front lines of that riot you know, protesting, especially when black tie seems to be a, a Lovecraft thing, right? He always wore those old suits, even if they were falling apart and too thin and, and, 
and, and worn out. You know, he kept that respectability. But he seemed to be on the side of the students here in their rebellion because he saw it as kind of a, a racial trait. He kind of, it, it's a little bit like riot porn, I guess, um, to be honest. But I, I love how, maybe he's just having fun with Morton, but, you know, teasing his anarchism. But um, Lovecraft does say here he, how much he kind of respects this rebellion of these students. So it's a short little uh, snippet, but it moves us into the more interesting letters he writes a couple months later. So the first of these is October 19, 29, and this is about machine culture. So um, maybe it's been a while since we talked. It, it comes up so much in Lovecraft's letters, though. Um, machine culture. Um, Basically, he thinks that's the future. The future is kind of ruled machines, right? Um, and the, the, the taking away of human freedom and, and human community by machines. So machines will not only take away our, our freedom, it will take away our culture and, and it will be the new foundation, right? So the same way this landscape reflects the culture, so does our technology, right? That's why he's, when he's in Foster, he says, oh, these new power lines or these new phone lines are going to corrupt and change the nature of the town, right? So he does see there's a relationship between the technology and the civilization, which I think is hard to deny. Um, so now he starts out by saying the future is unknowable but determined. This is an important point. We don't know the future and we can't really hedge our bets one way or another. We can't know what's going to happen. It doesn't mean it's not deterministic or the universe isn't fundamentally deterministic. We just don't have an awareness of it. So the argument here then becomes is that since we can't know the future, we can't have any affection or connection to the future. It can't be like, I guess this is a somewhat a, a backhanded criticism of socialism or anarchism because it's saying that those people like to say the future is going to be some better, right? It's, it's basically there. The, maybe this is a criticism of the whole Enlightenment project too, right? Which is weird because Lovecraft likes science so much, but he seems to have his problems with the Enlightenment. But this idea that the future is better, right? Progress. And, and Lovecraft doesn't see it that way. He sees much more a cyclical view of history, rising and falling civilizations. Um, but if we kind of are projecting ourselves to the future and saying the future is, is where the ideal society is going to be, where the utopia is going to be, well, we can't, we can't know what the future is, so we can't have any true affection for it. It's just, it's just intellectual... Um, we're just inwardly thinking about what we want the future to be and making, we're inventing something. We're inventing what, basically making it up out of, out of thin air, what we're, what our affections are connected to. Um, what we can have connection to is the past, right? So, you know, you, you probably heard the statement like the past is a foreign country, which I think is true, but Lovecraft doesn't agree. He would say, no, the future is the foreign country. The past we can know, certainly. We can have a firm grounding in it because it's in our culture. It's in our race, it's in our language, it's in our literary traditions, all these things. And, and we can hold on to that. We can hold on to it pretty firmly. So it's the future that's alien for Lovecraft. Um, so then he, this brings him into the failures of machine culture. Like, well, if we do, to the degree we can predict, right, it seems the f machine culture is going to predominate the future. And he just says machines will use up men. Machines will use men. People become adjuncts of the machine culture. These are the old criticisms. Now, he mentioned a book here called Dance of the Machines by Edward O'Brien, which I happen to just download from archive.org. It was written in 1929. So the same year this letter was written, this book was published. So Lovecraft just read it. And it's actually uh, 200 pages. It's called an essay on machines and lit or the short, something about the short story. I think it's focused on the sh machines and short stories. Um, but he had just read it and it must have really inspired him because he immediately starts to recommend this book. So Edward O'Brien, Dance with the Machines. That goes on our list of, of things maybe we should read, along with uh, Murray's book on witches. Um, and let's see, maybe, yeah, I don't know what drove him to buy that book or to, to read it, but check it out from the library, however he got a hold of it. It's really interesting. Um, he says, like, Basically, this book helps show that we're becoming machine men, mechanical men, extensions of the machine. Um, he also talks, of course, about, and this is an old theme, that we're going to have this new mechanical 
aristocracy. The technocrats, the engineers, they're going to be the new aristocratic class. Now, what's that? Now, he goes back to the 18th century. So what does he like about that? Well, they, of course, have an aristocracy in 18th century England. But I, I think to one degree, he's probably affected by American views on aristocracy, which are like from the Enlightenment, from the American Revolution. This idea of a natural aristocracy. Um, I don't know. Maybe he does believe in aristocracy of blood. I guess he does. Right. I'm being optimistic if I want to imagine him somehow Americanizing it with this natural aristocracy, this idea, aristocracy of virtue or whatever. No, I think he does actually believe in a blood aristocracy is better than a machine aristocracy, which will at least be meritocratic, at least be a little bit more open, right, to other people, right? You go to get your engineering degree, you run the factory, and you become the new aristocrat, right? At least you kind of earned it to some degree. Anyways, that's, that's his weirdness. I mean, I'm also not, a, I, I think he's right to some degree that machine culture is, or machinery, technology, we, we have a kind of toxic relationship with technology. I, I don't disagree with that. But he kind of gets a little wild with it from time to time. I mean, and maybe this is interesting because I, I really want to know what Morton says about this because most anarchists now are pretty pro-tech in the sense they think technology and help us restore a more harmonious relationship with nature if we use it properly. They, they, of course, they want more democratic, more thoughtfulness about technology and technology used to ways to liberate people, not enslave them, right? But most anarchists seem to be pro-technology because they, they're post-scarcity. They believe, like with all communists, that freedom is resting on some kind of element, nature, some element of post-scarcity. All right. Anyways. He also talks about the decline of art. Um, now, one fascinating thing here, getting to his ideas on race a little bit, is he talks about this machine culture as a foreign culture. He compares it to, like, like if he says, like, if the Japanese invaded and imposed their culture on us, we'd resist this. So why are we not resisting this machine culture, which is just as devastating to our traditional cultural roots? So, anyways, really, really important letter, a great one. Um, and... What's really impressive is less, less than two weeks later, he writes back with an even longer letter on civilization, a follow-up kind of letter, which doesn't take on machine culture so much, but more of this rising, falling civilizations. I think it's about 20 pages in the selected volumes or selected letters. Um, handwritten, it, it may have even been longer. And of course, it's edited a little bit. So again, he says, no predictable future. All right. Um, and he also says there's an anthro he, he adds to this argument, though, that there's an anthrocentrism in futurists, which I think there's a truth to that. Like when futurists write, they're writing about the future of humanity. Now, there are books that say like there's that book like Future Without Man, something like that. What will the future look like when man's extinct? But most futurists are saying, well, what's the future of humanity going to be? Right. And Lovecraft's like, well, <laughs> The future, you know, humans might stick around for a while, but in the cosmic time, it doesn't matter, right? That futurists are really too obsessed with humanity. Um, so, yeah, I think his criticism here is kind of lame because what else are futurists going to write about, right? <laughs> the rising, falling gods? No, they write, write about rising, falling civilizations, which is actually what Lovecraft does in this letter, is talk about the rising, falling, really falling civilizations, right? So he rejects progress, which again, is a carry on from the previous. I got to imagine Morton challenges him on this idea of progress from this previous letter. And he says, no, no, like progress is impossible. So civilizations can rise, but they fall, right? There's a cyclical nature, right? There's patterns in human history, not general progress, right? Now, progress, I guess, is a pattern, but he rejects that that pattern is very common in history. Instead, you get these cycles. He's got a more... Um, now, not like in a Chinese dynastic sense or in kind of a Buddhist sense, even. I think it's more in that civilizations tend to follow certain patterns. Like Rome goes one way, the West will go one way. It, it's just the way things sort of go. It's, there's a fatalism about it, I guess. Um, now, he seems to be responding specifically to things Morton's questioning him on, like, for instance, on race. Um, and Lovecraft often picks on Morton for being a humanist and and anti-racist 
And he says, well, ra- like being anti-racist is just sentiment. Like any sentiment towards others outside of maybe our cultural roots or our family is just artificial. So multi, like multiculturalism is sentiment just extended beyond even one's cultural uh, roots, right? Like what you can't have a multicultural culture in Lovecraft's view. It doesn't make any sense. A culture is, is a unit of, of knowledge and traditions and values. And you can't like mix them. They don't mix. It's oil and water. Right. I, I, I don't agree with him here, but that's, that's what he starts to think. I, th- I think actually cultures borrow all the time and, and the cultures we have are themselves multicultural. If you look at their roots. Um, anyways, then there is a response about the question of Christianity. And he says this is just a, a false community value that doesn't really solve the problem. Um, he returns to cultures and diversity of cultures and races, saying there's basically a lack of communication between cultures. So they really can't mix very well. Again, oil and water. He rejects universals. So it seems he's going like point by point, responding to some of Morton's claims. Um, now, ultimately, he gets to the question of democracy. And, and he thinks democracy is something that's going to dilute freedom and dilute culture and break up and distort our relationship with society. So he's, he sees freedom more rooted in these cultures. So this is a pretty typical conservative, cultural conservative argument in this opposition of democracy as giving too much individual freedom and not enough freedom rooted in society, which, you know, I, if, you, if he was talking to a 21st century anarchist, now I don't know, again, I don't have Morton's letters, but I think if he was talking to a 21st century anarchist, there'd be common ground here. Because again, back to that the very early letter we talked about with Toldridge, most anarchists and most anarchist stuff I've read, including stuff from the 18th and the early 20th century, 19th and early 20th century, suggests like when you take away the state, you need society. Society then becomes our foundation. Free, it's like something Murray Bookchin says, like. Um, f- the form of freedom, this is a form of freedoms talk, right? The form of freedom is like the soil, right? And that soil can be toxic or it can be liberating, right? But without that soil, you can't have a cult. You can't flourish as an individual. It doesn't make any sense to be an individual in a totally atomized world or a desert island for that matter. So again, I, I think there's some some common ground to have here. He's just reacting so harshly to the anarchists that, that maybe he doesn't really think about what they're actually saying. Um so he goes back to 18th century as his dream, and he actually picks on Morton saying, well, my dream is the 18th century. Your dream is universal harmony. We're both kind of up our own asses about this uh, and, you know, whatever. I mean, it's a really kind of important moment because he obsesses so much about the 18th century. But here he basically says, you're with all this enlightenment and freedom and intercultural diversity and the brotherhood of all man. You're up your own ass. I'm up my own ass about the 18th century. You know, it's just the way it is. But none of it really matters at the end of the day. Um, he talks about instinctive cosmopolitans. It's a really wonderful passage where he picks on people who have an instinct to be cosmopolitan. I think he's thinking about Morton here as someone who's instinctively a cosmopolitan. Um, basically, tradition is... An emotional bulwark. That's its conclusion at the end. Tradition is our emotional bulwark in this indifferent universe. And we need it. And you guys are kind of threatening it, I guess. You anarchists. Um, again, I think maybe if Lovecraft had read more anarchism, he might have he might have a different point of view. But anyways, the Morton letter is really, really great. A lot of fun. Kind of amazing, actually. So... Oh, there's one more Morton letter I should just mention for completeness. November 29th, which is more of a personal note. Um, but it's interesting. Um, he basically talks about how, oh, thank you for helping me write a letter to help save this warehouse on South Water Street in Providence. Actually, I think it came, I think we talked about this in the previous series. It, 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 I'm, it come, it's familiar to me, this, this warehouse on Water Street. Um, but it failed. Apparently it gets shut down anyways. And Lovecraft sort of rants about this basically is like vandalism of barbarians. 
So uh, he's, he, of course, takes seriously cultural preservation, and he tries to preserve uh, the architecture of Providence when he can. It's his little public politics um, that he gets involved in. All right, then. So we're through, I think, with the important letters from this series. I still have six to talk about, but it'll be more brief. Um, so the next is just one letter in this section to Zelia Bishop. Of course, Zelia Bishop is, he's working closely with Bishop now because this is the time period he wrote The Mound and uh, Medusa's Coil and Curse of Yig. Um, and she's asking him apparently like for advice on self-study regimen to be a writer. And he gives her this course of study saying, um, where is it? Uh, just uh, a list of different kind of courses she can take, self-study stuff. But he also says avoid pop culture. Avoid pop culture. It's not going to be that good for you. So not that important. There's much more interesting letters to Bishop um, elsewhere, but not here. Then we have four to August Derleth. Um, yeah, as usual, the letters to Derleth aren't the most fascinating uh, to to, to deal with, I mean, Durless is very important for the existence of these selected letters and the creation of Arkham House and a lot of the fame um, of Lovecraft since his death is, you know, helped along by Durleth, to, to say the least. But the letters between Durleth and Lovecraft aren't the most fascinating, I think. Maybe there's some good ones, but not here, anyways. Uh, but we got in September 4th, he writes to Durleth talking about the Foster pilgrimage, which we already talked about. He wrote much more about it to Mo. You notice here he just sort of mentions it. He doesn't go on for 30 pages about his family history. Um, in September, later in September, he writes a little bit about the New England landscape. On October 6th, this one is a little bit more relevant because he, he goes back to the theme of New York sucking um and how man needs roots and he thinks the decline of the fabric of american civilization uses that language the fabric of american civilization is due to migration important in the overall discussion of lovecraft's views on race and culture and immigrants but nothing new there um and then on october 21st he wrote to durlath about architecture of new england uh, but not saying too much interesting. So not the most fascinating set of letters there. And then we have one uh, to Clark Ashton Smith. This was written in October. And again, not too interesting. Usually these letters are good, but in this case, often he writes to Smith though about like his day-to-day -day career problems. Um, and this isn't, or successes. Um, you know, he often writes more interesting stuff, but again, not in this case, at least not as far as it was edited in this book. Um, he basically says he wrote Curse of Yeg. This is where the evidence comes from that, where he basically lays claim to the Curse of Yeg as his own story. He says, yeah, I got a little bit of a sketch from Bishop, but basically the story's mine. And then he says, this isn't the only thing I wrote. I also wrote the Dunwich Horror in this period. So not that important unless you're, but it's, it's important for that quote if you care about his authorship of the Curse of Yeg, because he's usually fairly modest about the revisions, but this time he says, I basically wrote this. And as we know, uh, this is, the Bishop revisions are mostly Lovecraft's own work. So that's it. So I really like this format. I think it by looking by correspondent, we have a better foundation uh, approach to, uh, to understand the works, his, his writing overall. So or his letters overall. So I'll keep doing that into the future, at least for the next two volumes. I, don't have, I still don't have volume five of the selected letters. Someone's got to get it to me. Um, so anyways, next we have, uh, it'll be November 29 to February 1930. No, to March, no, yeah, till February 1930. So just uh, three, four months or so of letters in the next 20. Um, and I haven't reread them yet. There's a big one on marriage, I remember. Uh, maybe this one's to Morton. Is this the one that has that monster one to Harris? Yeah, this is the monster letter to Harris. Awesome. That's going to be the high, high point, is that monster letter to Harris that deals with everything. Um, these do get repetitive. I don't know. But... 
this, to the degree he has said something new, I want to point that out. And it doesn't hurt to the kind of documents in these letters, I guess. Someone might find use out of this, I hope. Anyways, let me know what you think about the set of letters or his correspondence with any of these people. Um, I'll be working hard over the Spring Festival to at least get these eight episodes done. And then maybe back to stories. Some good stories coming up too. So uh, I will see you then. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you want to correspond. I got to go back to that email address actually and respond to a few emails. Um, yeah, or you can leave a comment, leave a review on iTunes. That would help me. No one does. I guess I don't have that many listeners. It's a pity. Um, but yeah, that's it. So I'll see you next time um, with the next chunk of letters in oh, volume three of the Select the Letters. See you then. Please don't let me lose my rightful mind. Close him his graveyard words. And I